Has everyone got their Bibles ready? All right, we're going to be studying. Uh, we're in the book of James, of course. We're uh, over on lesson number 11, and we're getting very close to finishing. It's been a good quarter's study, hasn't it? Absolutely fantastic. And uh, today's lesson is getting ready for the harvest. Getting ready for the harvest. And uh, our scripture or our memory text is in James chapter 5 and verse 8. And the writer says this He says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at what, friends? It's at hand. That's right. Coming of the Lord is at hand. And so you want to be over in the book of James here. We're going to be studying it and looking at it in detail here as we, uh, as we move right along in our study. You know, uh, it's no secret, you know, that I'm from a Commonwealth country originally. And uh, coming from a Commonwealth country means that you often uh, get a visit from the Queen, from uh, even the Prince and, and his bride. And, and this would happen occasionally. Uh, the preparations are extensive for a royal visit. Uh, streets and shops uh, are cleaned, made impeccable. The town is decorated, musicians and bands ready themselves to, re to meet the royal pageantry. Security is also upped a notch. And um, massive preparation uh, happens when royalty, when a monarch is getting ready to arrive. Um, now, if we're excited, and, and oftentimes Commonwealth countries do get excited, I know there's some Canadians here in, the midst, uh, in our midst today, um, when you're living in a Commonwealth country, you get excited when monarchy, when royalty appears and comes. And uh, so, how much more excited should we be, and how much more extensive the preparations, how much more they should be, when the King of the universe has said He's coming back? He's coming, royal, heavenly royalty, the King of kings, Lord of lords is coming back. How much more excited should we be? And how much more extensive the preparations? So the questions that we're going to be answering here uh, this morning is how do we make those preparations? And especially when we don't know the day or the hour of Jesus coming. So how do we make those preparations? And what does it mean to be uh, patient and endure or establish our hearts? And then how does that relate to the subject of the early and the latter rain, which James references here in these verses that we're going to be uh, reading together. And so all these questions will be answered uh, here uh, this morning. And uh, perhaps you already have your answers because you've studied your lesson and here we are reviewing it together. I want to read the verses for you that we're going to be studying, reviewing here uh, with you. And it's James chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, just to give us an overview, and then we'll take it verse by verse and break it down. It says here, James chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen uh, the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth 
or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So there it is. We're going to be reviewing these verses uh, together this morning. So we'll pick it up and we'll begin, of course, naturally at the beginning at verse 7. James chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The theme that James is drawing on, uh, the theme that he wants to uh, speak to us about here is the coming of the uh, heavenly monarch, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the coming of the Lord. And he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it, until it receives the early and the latter rain. So, James encourages us to be patient, therefore, or if you have the New King James, like I'm reading from, therefore be patient. Uh, You'll notice, and you have noticed as we've studied together uh, the book of James, that James uses the word patient or patient several times. As a matter of fact, he uses it about six times um, in his writing to the church back then and to you and to I and, uh, and me rather. And uh, the word patience or, uh, and patient denote a hopeful endurance uh, or bearing long or being long suffering. Um, and so he's inviting the believers to therefore be patient and wait, he says. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Why be patient? under provocation and not lose courage. Why be patient at all? And of course, the preceding verses uh, in chapter 5, which we looked at last week, uh, talk about the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, the oppression of the rich, um, money trouble and, and, uh, um, and uh, yeah, just problems on planet earth. And of course, God's people would be in the crossfire, uh, the, the crosshairs of all of this challenge and all of this trouble. And, uh, and so he says, because of this, you need to be patient. You need to be patient. So why? Why be patient under provocation and, uh, and not lose courage? Because Jesus is coming back, that's why. Amen. Jesus is coming back and he says uh, that he's coming back soon. So he wants us to be patient because Jesus is coming back and when Jesus comes back, what's he going to do to the righteous? Or what's he going to do for the righteous? He's going to vindicate the righteous. He's going to prop them up and say, you know, uh, here you are, you've done what is right, you've been faithful, you've endured till the end, and so just be patient until I come, because when I come, I'm going to set things, I'm going to make wrong right, I'm going to set things in order. And of course, when Jesus comes back, the wicked are going to be put in their place. And so he says, be patient. You know, the perception or the perspective of the shortness of earth's challenges compared with the eternal happiness and glories that the Bible promises God's people has always been a source of encouragement to the believer. And it ought to be for you and I today as well. I mean, we only live so long. We studied a couple of weeks ago about uh, numbering our days, counting our days, because our days are like, how did James put it? He said it's like a vapor, just vanishes. We're here for a very short time. And uh, when you compare simply our 70-some years of existence with Adam and Methuselah who lived 969 years of age, 70 years is nothing, is it? Isn't it? It's barely anything. Um, But then you compare that to eternity, infinity, and there's no end 
And so keeping things in proper perspective has always been a source of encouragement to God's people, and I trust that it'll be a source of encouragement to you as well. Keep in mind, Jesus is coming back, and when Jesus comes back, He's going to set things right. I mean, of course, there's a thousand years, and then, of course, the executive judgment, and then God will make all things new. I get that. But James is encouraging us to look forward to the second coming of Jesus when uh, Jesus is going to set things right. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. And the coming of Jesus is compared here in James chapter 5, verse 7, to a harvest. Farmers and the population, us, we are completely dependent upon right weather to produce staple foods for living, aren't we? I mean, we are completely dependent on, the, on good weather patterns and good weather cycles. Uh, it can't be too wet or too dry, and it can't be too hot or too cold at particular times of the year. Now, if you grow your own garden, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when I went to college, they had us do some agriculture, and uh, that was not always fun, but you learned some good lessons, and there's wonderful spiritual lessons to be learned uh, from uh, agriculture. But, uh, but you, you know when you're planting that garden, you now you plant the seed, and now, I mean, you're just totally dependent upon the elements, totally dependent that it's not going to be too hot or too cold or too wet or too dry, and, uh, or else the produce is going to be adversely affected we're going to be in trouble. Now, uh, in drier countries, such as Israel, where James was writing, uh, the margin is even less, and the importance of the right amount of rainfall uh, falling at the right time of year is greater than perhaps uh, what other places in the world uh, would, uh, other places in the world need to be con too, too, uh, too concerned about. Uh, even here in California, it's pretty dry, and so uh, the, there's not a lot of margin, not a lot of room for error. Uh, so he, here, James refers to the coming of Jesus, and he talks about waiting patiently for it, just like a farmer does who waits for the early and the latter rain. What is he talking about? Early and latter rain. Well, the early rain, it fell basically in the autumn and uh, around... Uh, October, November in that time of year. And that was the time that uh, farmers would go out and plant their crops and uh, the ground would be soft and moist and of course the seed would be able to germinate with those early rains. And, uh, and then uh, the latter rain simply fell in the spring, fell in the spring before the summer harvest during the months of March and April. That was pretty much where it, where it, when it fell. And basically it brought the crop, the crop to what? To maturity. It helped bring the crop to maturity. Uh, interestingly, the barley harvest in Palestine begins in the middle or the end of April with wheat coming in the next month and then the summer fruits, fruits, grapes and then olives, they all come in the late summer and fall. There's a couple of verses that I want us to look at here this morning. Um, someone has Joel chapter 2 verse 23 for me. They're going to be reading that. Who's got that? Right over here. Okay. Um, Job chapter 29, verse 23, you can write these texts down, just want to read these for you. Uh, Job says, they waited for me, these are his friends, they waited for me as for the rain, they opened their mouth wide as for the spring of rain. Uh, Job's counsel, he likened to the rains, even the latter rains, and of course, this signifies the importance that they put on those rains during those, that time of year. My wisdom is like the rains that fall down to, to, uh, to produce or to bring the, the harvest to uh, consummation. 
And then Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 15, uh, the wise man says, in the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud of latter rain. And this shows the high regard those of the Middle East, again, had for the rainy season. Their, their, their life depended upon the rains falling at the right time. Notice this in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3. It's talking about Jesus, actually. Let us know, uh, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. And so God promises to bring abundant blessings that would nourish and revive spiritual life, and that would come through Jesus. Joel chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 23. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Larry, um, I want to invite you to turn there, if you're not in Joel, turn over to Joel, and I want to look at verses 28 to 31 with you real quick. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31. So Joel says that uh, God will give His people the former and the latter rain, and verse 24 talks about the threshing floors will be full of wheat, the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. Jump over to verse 28 and 31, because right here, uh, Joel takes the illustration, or the, uh, the, the, the facts, rather, of the early and latter rain, and he applies them to something very, very important, an event that's going to take place prior to the return of Christ. Notice, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my, what friends? My spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. And notice before when friends? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Interesting, very interesting. So here Joel uses, uses rain to symbolize the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 44 verse 3, the prophet says that he will pour water upon a dry barren ground and, he, and he's illustrating God pouring out His Spirit, life, upon His people who are ready to receive Him. Now, interestingly, Peter, uh, Peter applied this prophecy in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31. He applied this prophecy to what happened on the day of, do you remember? Pentecost, that's right. He applied it to what happened on the day of Pentecost. But we know that the context for Joel 2 is not Pentecost, but when? Prior to the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, so, was Peter wrong? Did he take it out of context? No. Under inspiration, he helped, he's helped us basically understand that historically speaking, the early rain fell at that time. And then in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, Peter then talks about the latter rain, talks about times of refreshing that will come prior to the return of Jesus. He says, and then we will see Jesus. But this time he's talking about the latter rain. 
the times of refreshing, and they fall prior to the return of Jesus. So, the, historically speaking, the early rain fell on Pentecost, while the latter rain will take place when? Just prior to the return of Jesus. It was pretty powerful what happened back then, and uh, it's going to be magnificent when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon His people, God's people, here in these last days. Why would the Holy Spirit need to be poured out in greater measure in the closing scenes of earth's history? I glean these ideas from Scripture and also from the Spirit of Prophecy. Here's several reasons why. Number one, to, to help God's people uh, push the third angel's messages into the world, to get the message out there, to tell people that Jesus Christ is Savior, and to warn them not to receive the mark of the beast. And then uh, also to enable a large number to take their stand on the side of truth. So under the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, typically we, we call that the latter rain, uh, under the loud cry, which, which uh, gives a loud cry, uh, declaring uh, the truth of God's Word in great power, not because we become powerful, but because we become more Christ-like. Um, uh, and we, and that's, this is a process that, we're, that God is working with us on day by day, amen. Uh, this is just, it's a culmination, pushes God's people out, message goes out, and people take their stand on the side of truth and of righteousness. And it also, the latter rain is given to prepare God's people to, uh, to stand during the time of trouble and to endure the seven last plagues. And so the, the, holy, the, the outpouring of the latter rain is very important for the finishing of the work and to prepare a people that will stand through something this world has never seen, a time of trouble such as never was. And that includes the, the, the outpouring of the seven last plagues. God will protect and preserve His people, but the Holy Spirit is poured out in great measure so that people will, res will hear the message and respond to the message. What we're doing today, uh, uh, what we do today is, pow is powerful, reaching out to individuals, witnessing to family members, uh, uh, doing evangelistic meetings, uh, using media to share the gospel. This all has its very important place, but it's under the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the work will actually get done. It'll actually get done under the early rain, Boy, the gospel poof, went like wildfire, and uh, and so it's going to be again in the last days. Uh, and and it and the rain is given. The latter rain is given to ripen the, the earth's harvest. And there are two harvests, aren't there? Before Jesus, when Jesus comes back, there's the harvest of the righteous, and there's the harvest of the unrighteous, the wicked, as we would say, right? And uh, and so we are daily preparing to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here's a few other thoughts that I collected from the pen of inspiration regarding receiving the latter rain, some of the prerequisites for us receiving the latter rain. One, God's people ought to be praying earnestly for the latter rain. Number two, humbling our hearts in true repentance, not being sorry because we got caught or because we got into trouble, uh, but being sorry because we offended God or somebody else. Uh, experiencing true reformation from the inside out in the, in the life, uh, putting away envy, strife and dissension, loving one another, and then, of course, laboring for the lost. All these things prepare God's people for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I love this uh, statement. It's found in the Upward Look, and it's on page 283. Uh, she says, we need not worry about the latter rain. And she's not saying we shouldn't be praying for it. She goes on to say, all we have to do, and I love this, all we have to do is keep the vessel clean and upright. 
Just keep the vessel clean and upright and prepared for the reception of the heavenly rain and keep praying, let the latter rain come into my vessel. Let the light of the glorious angel which unites with the third angel shine upon me. Give me part in the work. Let me sound the proclamation. Let me be a co-laborer with Jesus Christ. That's what she's encouraging us to pray. Thus seeking God, let me tell you, she says in closing, He is fitting you up all the time and giving you of His grace. Isn't that nice? So keep the vessel what? Clean and keep it what? Upright. Keep the vessel clean and upright and be praying that God will shine His glory upon you and give you a chance to share His message with others. There's so much to talk about with regard to the early and latter rain and time doesn't permit. So we're going to go over now to Monday's lesson. Uh, we actually just did Sunday, so we're now over into Monday's. Let's uh, look at verse, verse 8 of James. James chapter 5 and verse 8. So James is encouraging us to be patient as the farmer waits for the precious fruit. Look at verse 8. He says again, you also be what? Patient. There it is again. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is what, friends? Coming of the Lord is at hand. So just as the farmer is patient, we also need to be patient as well. We need to be patient. Don't fret and freak out when the wicked seem to just get away with quote-unquote murder. Don't fret. Don't worry. I think the psalmist says something about that in Psalm 37 and 73, if I'm not mistaken. So don't fret, don't worry. And don't be overwhelmed by the challenges you might face. Don't get impatient even with yourself when you perceive that there is little spiritual growth taking place in your own life. What did Jesus tell us to do with regard to our own personal growth? He said, look to the flowers, look to the lilies. They don't toil or spin. They don't strive and wrestle to grow. What do they do? They simply receive of the elements, the things that God has provided for them in order to grow. Sunshine and nutrition and water. And so we're to do the same. It's, it's a mystery to me how, how folk get frustrated with themselves. They're not experiencing any growth. They feel like they're digressing more than they're progressing in their Christian walk. And then when you ask them, are you spending time with Jesus in prayer and study of his word? And they say, no. What do you expect? What do you expect? You've got to receive of the things that God has provided for our spiritual nourishment and our sustenance, amen? And that's spending time with Him in prayer and secret prayer and, and being in an attitude of prayer throughout the day, spending time studying God's Word and letting His Word transform and change our lives, you see. And so don't get impatient, he says. Don't be, just be patient. Don't get impatient. Let's receive what God has provided for us. And then, and then when Jesus comes, He's coming for what type of fruit? Now I'm jumping back to verse 7. He's coming for what type of fruit? Not just any fruit, but precious, precious fruit. Jesus is coming for precious fruit or fruit or for dear or for valuable fruit. Why is it precious? Why would you and I be considered precious fruit that Jesus is coming back to harvest? According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, because we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That's why. We've been brought, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Don't let anyone, and don't even let the devil suggest to you that you are worth nothing. Don't let the devil have his way in your mind, in your heart, discouraging you and depressing you, thinking you're not any good. Read Isaiah 43 verse 4 if you come to that conclusion. Uh, God doesn't love me. I, I don't know if he can take me the way I am. I don't know if he, if he really considers me to be of any value. I'm worth nothing. Look at my upbringing. Look at my life. Look at what I'm doing now. I'm just worth nothing. No. Isaiah. Isaiah 43 verse 4, 
tells us that God views us as being precious. We are precious in His eyes. Question for us here this morning is, is God precious to you? Is God precious to you as He views us as precious? And then, let's go on. James chapter 5 and verse 8. Be, uh, he says, also be patient. And then He says what? Establish your hearts or to set fast your hearts or to brace your hearts or to make stable your hearts. The matter, the matter of living for the Lord has to be settled in our hearts. You know, James elsewhere talks about a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's saying, don't, don't be that way. Don't, don't flip-flop. Don't, don't wonder. Don't just, just believe on Jesus. Accept His promises uh, for you. Don't be flip-flopping back or forth, sitting on a fence. Establish your hearts. It's kind of like the issue of loving your spouse was settled before and on the day of your wedding. You settled it in your heart. You didn't come to the wedding altar and say, oh, man, I'm not sure. I love you, but I don't know if I, if I love you enough. Um, or I love you, but uh, you look, after the wedding, I'm going to slip you a piece of paper that says, uh, I'm going to go visit my old girlfriends and uh, go hang out with them. No. Before we get married, what are we doing? We're settling the issue, aren't we? We're settling the matter of our love for our spouse. That's it. That, no one else is going to have my heart. My heart is wholly hers or his, whichever side you're on. So establish your heart. So no matter, so no matter what temptation, so ma- no matter what trial or challenge or suffering, and I don't want to belittle how challenging uh, some people's experiences are or the suffering they might endure, but no matter how difficult it is, the temptation, the trial, the suffering, the challenge, the Bible says when we establish in our hearts to serve the Lord, we will not be moved. We're going to continue to trust Him. We're going to continue to hold on to Him. We're not going to let go. And then he talks about establishing our hearts. Why? Be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord. Now that word, uh, someone has uh, Romans chapter 13 verse 11. I'm going to have them read that for me in just a moment. Who's got Romans 13 verse 11? Just put your hand up if you've got that over here. Wow. All right. Right there in the pie. All right. We're going to come to you in just a moment. All right, so uh, that's Romans 13, verse 11. James says, be patient, establish your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. I just want to deal with something here just real quickly. Coming, coming of the Lord. The Greek word for coming is parousia. That's in the Greek. And it simply means presence or arrival. That's what it means, presence or arrival. And this word, parousia, is frequently seen in ancient documents when referring to the arrival of some emperor or some dignitary or king. Matthew uses the word coming, and if you just jump over there with me to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, Jesus uses the word coming several times in Matthew 24. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age or the parousia, the coming? And then over in verse uh, 27, 37 and 39, Jesus uses the same word, coming, parousia, arrival or the presence uh, of Jesus. Paul, 
He sometimes used the word to denote uh, presence versus absence, and you can read about that in Philippians chapter 2, uh, presence versus absence. But there is nothing in this word once that hints at a secret arrival of Jesus. The word parousia doesn't hint at or suggest at all a secret coming of Jesus. There is a church that teaches that, that back in the early 1900s, Jesus came invisibly, but He came visibly to those who have faith and saw Him with the eye of faith. And they take this word coming or parousia to suggest that Jesus' coming would always be silent, secret, and that's certainly not the case at all. As a matter of fact, when you read over there in Matthew chapter 24, look at verse uh, 27 and 37. For at, look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the parousia or coming of the Son of Man be. Now, let me ask you a question. Is, is, lightning, is lightning secret? When did you ever experience secret lightning? <laughs> it's always visible, isn't it? It's always present. It's, I mean, and you, and you hear lightning, don't you? Don't you hear lightning? What's it called? Thunder. Thunder. Yeah. So there's nothing secret about it. And uh, no matter what, what a, this particular church suggests, uh, that's not the case at all. So we, we don't need to worry about that word coming or parousia. It means arrival. It means presence. And we know when Jesus comes back, He's coming with all His holy angels. We're told in Luke that He comes with the glory of the Father, with His own glory and the glory of all the holy angels. That is not going to be a secret, is it, my friends? Everybody on planet Earth is going to know when Jesus appears. Amen? Amen. And for God's people, that's going to be one spectacular event and one that we're looking forward to. Now, James says that the coming of the Lord is at what? He says the coming of the Lord is at hand, or the coming of the Lord is near. So although Jesus said that we wouldn't know the day or the hour of His coming, He encouraged people nonetheless to know the times that we're living in and that He is near. Not here. Jesus isn't here, hasn't been here since 1914, but that His coming is near, even at the door, as you read in Matthew 24 and verse 36. But of the day and the hour knoweth no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then uh, Jesus talks about His coming being near. Okay, Romans 13, verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. All right. So for the apostle, Jesus' coming was back then, it was what? Near. Very, very near. He's saying, look, it's time to wake up out of sleep. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed when he wrote those words. Jesus' coming is very, very near. Now, how does that correspond with the words that Jesus uh, told his disciples in Acts chapter 1? If you want to go over there with me, turn there with me. Acts chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8. Notice uh, what Jesus said here. How does this correspond the nearness of Jesus coming, being ready, it is nearer than when we first believed with these particular words. Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, He said to them, when they asked Him if you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time, Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in, uh, to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of of the world. Uh, it's not for you to know the times. 
How does that correspond with the Apostle Paul saying, hey, Jesus' coming is nearer than when we first believed? It's not for you to know the times. That just simply means the endless procession of time or the seasons. We could simply say the climactic, climactic events to occur at the end of the age. Jesus was, in essence, saying to his disciples that, you, that they were not to know the exact date or the precise manner of, uh, of that kingdom and when that kingdom was to be established. There's no contradiction here between Jesus' previous words and the Apostle Paul and these words found in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is looking, in essence, these words say He's looking for individuals who do for the Master and allow themselves to be guided by the signs and the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, irrespective of how much they know. They just do their work. They put their nose to the grindstone and they, they share Christ and they live for Him, you see. But this issue raises another question that's been out there, and uh, Ray, I'm going to come to you in just a moment. We're going to get a microphone over to, to Ray. There's a question that, uh, that is circulated regarding this very issue, uh, regarding the nearness of Christ's return. It has been argued by many that if the um, uh, disciples preached that way back then, and they said that Christ is coming near, that He's coming soon, but yet it did not happen during their time frame, and uh, you know, centuries pass as well. How do we know that uh, we that we should be preaching that as well? Uh, are we right in saying that Jesus is coming soon, coming soon, and that's been preached for the past several generations? Hmm. And so, yeah, and th that's a question that does get circulated. I know you're not asking that yourself. It's just people have uh, that question. Look, if the disciples back, in other words, if we are here 2,000 years later, and they were saying back then Jesus' coming was very near, if we're here 2,000 years later and the Lord still hasn't come, what makes us think that Christ will come in our, in our generation? And, and unfortunately, some, some Adventists even ask that question. Can we be sure that Jesus is coming soon? Because the disciples were asking that question as well. My simple answer is this, watch the signs. Watch the signs. The disciples didn't know how long those, the fulfillment of some of those prophecies would take and how, how many centuries they would take to, to be fulfilled. Um, they just didn't know. The fact, that fact doesn't make them wrong any more than Daniel didn't fully understand the prophecies made him not a prophet. I mean, that's, that's absurd. Uh, sometimes the, the prophets, the apostles, declared something not knowing the exact time frame, the time line. For example, Paul, uh, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, he said, listen, that day, talking about the coming of Jesus, that day will not come unless the, a falling away happened first and the man of sin be revealed. Now, did Paul know exactly when that was going to happen? Didn't quite know fully exactly, but Jesus' coming wasn't going to happen until the man of sin was revealed. Jesus, in Matthew 24, spoke of a great tribulation period that would take place. Known, we know that as the dark ages, and that would be followed by the darkening of the sun and the moon being turned to blood and then the falling of the stars. You know, just a few days ago, we had the 181st anniversary of the falling of the stars. It took place on November, November something, November 12, was it? Yeah, 1833. Great meteoric shower that uh, hasn't been witnessed since, you see. Uh, these signs, and Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 8, that these signs would occur and increase earthquakes, natural disasters, economic challenges, and so on, they would increase in frequency and intensity, did you not? You've, you've heard it argued, look, we've always had earthquakes, we've always had pestilence and plagues and problems in this world. What makes us think that we're getting nearer to the end? 
Jesus said these are like birth pains, which grow in intensity and frequency. So as you see these things happening more and more, growing with intensity, you can know that my coming is near. Then, of course, you get to John the, John the, uh, John the Revelator. And he says that, uh, this, that the, this beast power that would rule during the Dark Ages would receive a deadly wound, and that wound would be what? Healed. And all the world would wander after the beast. And so all these things still need to take place before Jesus comes back. And we are to watch the signs. Not with fear and dread, but with anticipation and with hopefulness because our Savior is soon to come. Amen? So, so we, we don't need to get bent out of shape just because the disciples back then thought it was going to be near. They just didn't quite fully understand the time frame, how, how long these things would stretch out. We have the advantage of history. And we watch how history unfolds uh, and prophecy is fulfilled as history unfolds and we see where we are in the stream of time. You know, the, in book, the book of Revelation, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets all direct our attention to this day. There's no trumpet or seal or church that comes after the seventh one. And here we are. All the prophecies of Daniel 2 and 7 and 8, 9 and 11, 12, all those point to our day. We're living in the time of the end, prophetically speaking. And so we can know Jesus is coming. We, we, we're not going to sit here today and say, you know, in four years, three years, Jesus is going to come. We, we don't know that. We don't know that. One thing we can know for sure is that he's not coming tomorrow. But be careful because tomorrow is not promised you. So don't put off salvation. We've got a work to do as well. Amen. We've got to share the gospel with others. But Jesus is coming soon. So we don't need to be too worried about that question or that objection that's presented. Now, we need to move on because I've got to get three days in in nine minutes. So here we go. All right, Tuesday, James chapter 5 and verse 9. We're moving right along here. I'm going to have to chop a few things out. James chapter 5, verse 9. Be patient, establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing where? At the door. Who's the judge? Jesus said the Father has committed all judgment to the Son of Man. Jesus is the judge. He's coming back. Don't grumble. Now, I wish that it were that word, grumble. But from the original, we can actually mean, it could actually mean the word groan. Do not groan. That's a half-suppressed murmur or condemnation or to sigh. Don't do that amongst yourselves. Wouldn't you rather be instructed to not grumble than to groan? It's easy to groan, isn't it? Oh, there she goes again, rattling off at the mouth. Oh, there he goes again. And we sigh and we groan. And what, what does James say here? We put ourselves in a position of what? Condemnation. He said, don't, don't do that. Don't grumble. Don't, uh, don't grumble against one another. Don't only, not only deal with the wrongs of the oppressive rich, but also deal patiently with one another. It's so much easier it's, it is, and it's very easy to pick faults in the church, and that might be because we expect uh, a lot from the church. Now, there, are folk, uh, there are folk who are dealing with challenges in the world, they're standing up for truth and righteousness and are dealing with some very severe issues out there, and then they come into the church, they see some flaws and faults and are very quick to condemn. Now, it's a different thing to point out something that's truthful and do it in the right spirit. I'm not, we're not suggesting that uh, you, know, you keep your silence per se, but uh, we've got to watch our spirit. 
and uh, make sure that we're, we're expressing what we express in forbearance and in love and in graciousness, you see. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So this is, thank you, this is the admonition. Don't be criticizing each other, grumbling against one another, but be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Wednesday's lesson, models of patient endurance. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Let's read this together. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So what did Job, here, I'm going to ask you these questions. Here they are. These are for you to answer. What did Job and the prophets have in common? What did Job and the prophets have in common, according to what we're reading here? They both what? Or they all suffered. That's right. And you know, they suffered at the hands of whom? Their own people. Yeah, Job's friends were his <laughs> greatest enemies at the moment, weren't they? I mean, they didn't help him at all. Um, sometimes our suffering comes from within. We have more to fear from within than from without, the prophet reminds us. We need to be careful. Um, so they both suffered. And then why do you think that these examples are highlighted? Why are the examples of the prophets who suffered and Job who suffered, why are they highlighted in this context? Say that again. To be an example for us that we might copy them. That's, as a matter of fact, that's what the original Greek emphasizes. Not just an example, but an example for us to copy. That's right. To be an encouragement as we witness how they handled the pressures and the stresses and the challenges and the trials and, and the persecution. We can take great encouragement by how they handled it. Last question, what personal lessons can we take away from these stories for ourselves and for our own trials? I think we just answered that, didn't we? Yeah, we can learn lessons of what? Patience, endurance, faith. It's easy to ask God, where is He when the problems are mounting? But God hasn't moved. God hasn't moved. He has our eternal interest at heart, our best interest at heart. And He wants to help us, save us at last. All right, let's go over to Thursday. We have a couple of minutes and we'll wrap it up. Okay. James chapter 5 and verse 12. And he concludes this uh, section about patience and perseverance with these words. But above all my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. As a matter of fact, that word judgment uh, is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Uh, someone has Matthew 5, 34 to 37. Who's got that? Right over here, Richard. Thank you very much. Matthew 5, 34 to 37. James now comes to the climax of his thoughts. And here he is saying, don't swear by anything, but just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Is he prohibiting... Uh, is he prohibiting the, the, uh, the judicial oath at all? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? No, he's not prohibiting. As a matter of fact, let's read uh, Matthew 5, 34 to 37. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But I say unto you, swear not at all, 
neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. All right. So Jesus taught the same thing, didn't he? This is, again, coming back to us where James repeats or talks more about the uh, uh, teachings of Jesus. He often, often did that in his book. Uh, and like Jesus, James says, look, don't be, don't, don't be swearing, uh, swearing by anything, but just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And of course, he's not prohibiting the judicial oath because Jesus himself answered when he was under oath during that farce of a trial. Uh, but both he and, uh, and Jesus and James are both referring to common oaths that occurred among the Jews when they sought to, uh, th- that they would seek to wiggle out of. They would, s- they would swear by God or swear by the temple or even swear by what was happening, uh, or swear by the hair of their head. They would, uh, they would do those things, but then they would try to wiggle out of those promises that they had made. The, the law of God does not forbid oaths but instead it forbids perjury. And that's what James and Jesus are driving at here. So why, why make such a big deal out of this? He says, above all, above all that I've talked about here, above all, let your yes be yes and your no be no. James was urging, James, in James' letter, he's urging Christians words to be congruent with their deeds. Jesus said, from the abundance of the mouth, the what speaks? The heart speaks, that's right. James is dealing in his letter with matters of the heart. He's dealing with matters of the heart. What comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart. Uh, you know, I've, some of you have kids, I've got kids, and when they were small, it was interesting watching them talk and, uh, and make promises to one another. And they would say, I promise I will do it. And I'd ask my kids, why don't, why don't you just say you're going to do it? Why do you have to promise? Because that way then I have to do it. That way I have to do it. But isn't, isn't just saying you're going to do it good enough? <laughs> and uh, surely it is. You know, it used to be that you could take a man at his word. Then you got a handshake and then you got a contract and everything else in between, right? Things have changed. James is saying that a Christian's word ought to be good enough. Good enough. A Christian ought to be honest and transparent in all of their dealings, all the way from tithe to taxes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.